Morning once again, we again assemble for our morning Lord's Day worship here at Oakland Baptist Church. We have today chosen for our thought the subject of heaven compared to a crown of life. And I have selected three passages of scripture, first taken from the book of James, chapter 1 and verse 12, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, and Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. I'm going to read those scriptures from my notes in that, for brevity's sake, we have abbreviated certain statements in the text in order that we might weave together this thought about heaven being compared to a crown of life. As we follow from the reading at this time, why listen carefully. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there was laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Three different passages written from the pens of three different apostles, James, Paul, and the Apostle John. For several weeks now we have been following in this series of messages under the theme of death and the hereafter. We have followed several different major themes. We've looked at the analogy or the comparison that the Bible gives to us of death itself. We've looked at the resurrection and the comparisons that the Bible make of it. We've looked at the comparisons or the analogies that the Bible gives us of the judgment because we read it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. We've looked at the future punishment of the wicked, the analogies that God's Word gives of that. And for the last two days, the last two Lord's Days, we have examined that thought. Today, we want to bring this to a beginning of a conclusion as we focus upon heaven itself and see that the reward of the godly is referred to as the state and place of heaven, and that it is called a crown, in some texts of scripture, a crown of life, in other texts of scripture, and a crown of righteousness, in other texts of scripture. So the Bible will liken heaven, the reward of the saints, as to a crown of achievement. I'd like for us to look at the analogy between an earthly crown and the crown which shall be given to the saints of God in heaven. First of all, a crown represents a beautiful ornament to be worn on the head. I think that the best analogy that we could bring up to date between a crown and an award is that of our modern Olympic Games. They are given, that is, those who win the medals, 
they are given a silver or a gold or a bronze medal. And that is a reward for an achievement. In the early Grecian games in the times of Christ, they were given a crown or a wreath. And they would call up their victors and their various games, the way that the contemporary Olympics are carried out. And those who had won their particular event would be given a crown and it would be put upon their head. Now today, there is a medal that is hung around the person's neck. It is synonymous as far as the bestowing of honor, a reward, and a blessing with good wishes and intents to go with it. I'd like for us to look at some passages in the Bible to show that the Bible does bring this out. That a crown is a reward, it is an honor, and it is a blessing to have something bestowed upon us in the form of a crown. Go to the Old Testament, book of Proverbs first, chapter 4 and verse 9. Fourth chapter of Proverbs. Verse 7, Solomon speaking of wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Those of you who have been with us on Wednesday evening, you are rather Sunday evening, you are aware that we have explained that the wisdom that is presented to us in the book of Proverbs is personified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than an attribute of God. It is a person as a reigning oriental queen. And Christ is presented as a rich queen to be desired and to be partaken of. Verse 8, Exalt her, and she shall promote thee, and she shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Do you see the crown is defined as an ornament, a beautiful ornament which is designed to associate with honor, with blessings, and a reward for faithfulness. Some action that has been achieved that person, then, is rewarded or blessed by being crowned. Look also in the 17th chapter of Proverbs, verse 6. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. Now, I've got a biblical basis for calling some of you fellows old. Did you know that? If you've got grandkids, you're an old man, according to the Bible. <laughs> and the Lord willing, I'll soon be an old man, but I'm not yet old, all right? <laughs> I don't have any grandkids at this date. So even though my hair may indicate my age, uh, don't you call me old. Because I don't have any grandkids yet. Children's children are the crown of old men, 
the glory of children are their fathers. Do you see how the crown is associated with honor and glory? And as we have jokingly remarked to you and over the different places where I've preached about grandchildren, it seems like that when anybody has grandchildren that you ask them, well, do you have any grandchildren? And invariably, they either have their purse open or their back pocket just filled with those pictures and they ring out a great big line of pictures that you know it's going to take you the next 30 minutes to go through. Now, they're proud of that. And the grandchildren enhance the grandparents. And the Bible says that the grandchildren are a reward to the grandparents. So it is likened unto a crown, a crown in which that is symbolic of honor, blessing, and reward. So just as when a child has a child, then that is a reward to the grandparent, that a grandparent's child has rewarded them by bringing forth a child, and they are honored in doing so. Look in the 8th chapter of Psalms now. As we continue to develop this idea of a crown being a beautiful ornament to be worn on the head, representing honor and reward. Psalm chapter 8, and beginning in uh, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? What a wonderful name. His name is above every name. Who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, and that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, or the offspring of men, that thou hast visited him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him, note it, crowned man with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now, while the psalmist is praising God, he is deeply humbled at God's purpose in creating him as a human being. I've stated on two or three occasions that if you are disenchanted with your role in life right now, remember you could be a frog out croaking in a pond somewhere. And when you look at those lower creatures, then you realize that this God, in all of his majesty and glory, purposed to create you with an ability to communicate with him which the animals do not possess. Lord, while you were creating, and as I'm considering all that you created, oh, how mindful you were of human beings and their offspring, in that you have made man to have dominion over all the other creatures. 
And you read the opening chapters of Genesis and you'll see the superiority of man. Man has the intellect to name the animals, to discern them one from the other. And on and on and on. And then we read in the book of Hebrews that the man of man himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and that this text is applied unto him. That he was made a little lower than the angels, that he became a man, that he might taste death for men. But the text defines for us what an honor God has bestowed upon us when we compare ourselves with the rest of his creatures. And he likens that unto a crown of glory. God has crowned us, and he has made us more respectful, more dignified than the beast of the field, the fowls of the air, or the fish in the waters as they swim. O Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now, I just want to stop this morning and just thank God for giving me a brain to be able to speak this morning. I'm not out croaking like a frog somewhere. Now, that ought to also impress upon me this responsibility. Now, follow me carefully. Since God has given me so much more dignity than that of the animals, I ought not to live like the animals. Hmm? All the animals do is just pursue their natural instincts. They do not seek out after God. And you know what's happened to men in the fall of Adam? They live like beasts of the field. They do not make God the chief pursuit of their lives. They would rather pursue pleasure and entertainment rather than God. And yet God has given them this great God-given ability to be able to know Him, to seek Him out, to learn of Him. But yet men have no heart for that. They'd rather pursue after the temporal, animalistic lust of their own natures. God help us as God's people to study, to learn what God has to say to us. Did you know, folks, that uh, when Paul would write the book of Hebrews, he would chide the Hebrew Christians and reprove them because there were many things that he had to say to them which they had not yet matured enough to be able to to understand them, and that they had already reached a time which Paul says that they were should have been capable of being teachers. But now then, he says, I can't communicate certain things unto you because of your immaturity. I think that there is a great error that exists in our understanding that when we call ministers to be our teachers that we have the idea that only ministers are to study the Bible and only ministers are to be able to teach the Bible. If that's the case, on what grounds did Paul rebuke all the Hebrew Christians for not being able to teach others? Every Christian ought to know the Bible well enough to teach it to somebody else. And if you don't know it, it's because you are not pursuing out after it as the chief object of your life. In other words, you have made the study of the Bible and the knowledge of God a sideline. And God will not reveal his truth to those who put him second place. 
the study of the Bible and the knowledge of the Word, I say to you, my people, with all the authority of my being and the authority of the Word of God, must take superiority even above your job. It must take priority over your family. It must take priority over all other pursuits in life. And your job should be a sideline. Your family should be a sideline. The knowledge of God must be the top priority. And if it isn't made that, then we live below the dignity that God has created us with that capacity. Oh, God, help us to exalt your name. Now look in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are those benefits, Lord? Well, let's name them one by one. It'll surprise you what the Lord has done. All right, here we go. David, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Now, if you've been a Christian one hour, you ought to be able to teach somebody else or say, I'm a Christian, and what that means is my sins have been forgiven. Hmm? That's just basic, all right? Who healeth all thy diseases, that God's providential control watches over all of us. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, that we are plugged into his life support system. Who crowneth thee, now here's the word, verse 4, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. And then you read on down to blessing after blessing that David records, who satisfies thy mouth with good things. He feeds us so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. On through the remainder of the 103rd Psalm, blessing after blessing and David refers to these as being crowned, honored, and blessed by God with loving kindness and tender mercies. Enough said, then, that the Bible will substantiate the premise that a crown represents a beautiful ornament to be worn on the head, wherein it bestows honor, dignity, reward, and blessings of good things on the part of the people or person who is bestowing it. Secondly, in the Bible, a crown is a sign of dominion and a kingdom. Let's go now to the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 5. A crown is a sign of dominion. Someone who's in control is someone who wears the crown. They're in dominion. They're in possession of a kingdom wherein they rule. James, chapter 2 and verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? All of those who love God are those who have inherited a kingdom. They have been given dominion and authority in this world. This world is theirs in the sense that they are in control of their own affairs of their lives as they rule 
under the authority of God. Look in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5. Revelation 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that because of the kingship of Jesus Christ and his atoning work, that everyone who has been made a partaker of that work, has been made a king, and has had a crown bestowed upon them that will one day ultimately usher in their glorification in the world to come. So a crown then is a sign of dominion and of being in possession of a kingdom. You say, well, Pastor, how can that be consistent if a person's in, in control of their lives and they believe that their life is being ordered and it's orderly and in control, how is it that they have so many things happen to them that makes them wonder what in the world's going on? Well, you remember something happened to Jesus Christ, who was the King of glory. He was crucified and put to death on the cross. How in the world could a man look at Jesus hanging on a cross and pray, Lord, remember me when you come into your what? Into your kingdom. Because he's got to see that that man would not be hanging on that cross unless the king himself, the Lord, had so decreed to allow himself. So that while he was being humiliated and taken by wicked hands and being crucified and slain, it was all with his permissive will or his decree to allow them to do so. It was God working out his plan in his life. And Paul would pick up on that, and in the 8th chapter of Romans, he would say that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, even though we're accounted daily as sheep for the slaughter. That is, that our lives sometimes look like that they're an entire sacrifice, and that we are totally out of control just the same way that a little sheep is when they're about to be butchered. But, Paul says, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us, in that we know that if we're going to be sacrificed, it is for the honor and the glory of God, and we shall be crowned one day the same way the Lord Jesus Christ was crowned for his suffering. So it's not because that frustrating things happen to a child of God that they are not in control. What is it that enables us to feel like that our life is in control? It's an awareness of the sovereignty of God over us. So that if our ship appears to be going down to the bottom of the sea, we know who's the captain of the ship. That if our lives seems to be totally in disarray, we know that God is yet in control of our lives. And so that is a crown, that is a dominion. And if you think that's not worth something, and you go to the average person in America today and see what they would give for some peace and contentment that that idea gives to them. You see what people are spending in the psychologist's couch, in the psychiatrist's rooms, to try to find some meaning and to find themselves. That's the expression today. I'm trying to find myself. <laughs> well, they've lost it somewhere, and they know it. They're trying to get something back. 
They're trying to find their way through life. And if they've got money, they'll pour dollars and dollars and dollars just to sense, to get themselves in a position where they could feel like their life had some meaning they were in control of it. I saw a statement the other day in a writing I think I'm going to put on our sign out here, which I like very much. It said this, If you can't control the winds, adjust your sails. Let me say it again. If you can't control the wind, adjust your sails. And when a man learns he can't control God, it's best to adjust his will to God's will wherever the wind blows. Now that gives you a feeling things are in control. Hmm? That is a great honor to be given that understanding and that outlook on life, my folks. That is a privilege that money cannot buy. If you are given that concept to be able to look out on life like that, that the wind of God blows where it willeth, and that you're in that path, that he is blowing on your life toward an appointed destiny, your glory in heaven to come. Thirdly, a crown not only represents a sign of dominion and kingdom, but a crown represents victory and overcoming. It represents someone who has conquered, someone who has won the battle. Look in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. John states, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. say, well, I've never been cast into a prison, so I guess the devil's never had his outs at me. Have you ever gone through an extended period of suffering and depression in the heart? You may have been exposed to a satanic onslaught, and your soul may have been imprisoned even though your body was free and walking about. What are we to do when those dark times come? when we know that we're trying to serve God and yet we're suffering because of it, continue to serve God, knowing that there's a crowning day that is coming. Be thou faithful and I'll give thee a crown of life. What kind of victory did Christ achieve? Well, he was a victor over the effects of sin. He conquered Satan. He came in this world and he bound the strong man. He took away from Satan the power of death, and now he holds the keys of death and hell. Jesus Christ was victorious over death itself. He rose the third day from the grave. He was victorious over hell. You say, Pastor, do you believe that Jesus went into the realm of hell itself? There is disagreement among Bible students on this. I personally do not believe that he did after he died in the body, but I believe he suffered his hell while he was in the body on the cross, and it was there he entered into the realm of the damned. When he bore my suffering there in those dark hours upon the cross, his soul cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he died as a victor. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. He conquered what it was like to be separated from his Father 
And that's what I would have partaken of throughout all eternity if he had not been a victor there. So Christ is a victorious reigning king, and now he has been crowned with glory and honor and majesty and sits upon a throne at the right hand of God. And he says to me, follow me, and I'll give you the right to sit here on this throne even as I overcame. So what are we then to be victorious over? Striving against sin. The sin that is within us, the sin that is over us, the sin that is around us. Striving against the onslaughts of Satan's attacks upon us. And then having one day victory over death. To where that our, even our bodies, if they die and go back to the dust of the earth, that when the resurrection trumpet sounds, they shall come forth in a new glorified body. And then conquering hell itself. We shall be victorious and be given a crown that we have overcome and been victorious through the Lord Jesus Christ. Next of all, earthly crowns may soon fade away, but this crown abides forever. Those who have won those medals here a week or so ago, there'll come a time in which those medals will tarnish and begin to lose their glitter. But the crown that we shall be given in heaven is one that will never fade away. Look at the epistle of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. I'll read verse 3 for the context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that faith reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. All these crowns that we get here when we are given honor and we are given respect those crowns can soon fade away. When my father was in his profession of uh, baseball, he remarked to me as a child on several occasions of what a frustration it was to him of how that he could go out and pitch a two-hitter, a shutout, and the fans would cheer and applaud, would wait till after the game was over, he'd shower and be outside the... Uh, entrance way from the stadium there to shake his hands and want his autograph. The newspaper writers would give him full coverage on the game that he had pitched. And then he said he could go out three days later and get knocked out in the first inning. they throw stuff out of the stands at him, the same people who had asked for his autograph a few days before. The sports writers would tear him apart, say he shouldn't even be in the major leagues. The purpose I learned then is that all earthly glory and fame is subject to change and is so easily ready to fade away. Those that held us in high esteem one day may be ready to put us aside the next day. Look at the look at this in the realm of leadership. It's over and over again. Earthly crowns may fade. 
Folks, eternal life shall not fade. When we are rewarded with our reward in heaven, it will be a crown that is incorruptible and that fadeth not away. Next of all, earthly crowns may be obtained unjustly, but this crown of heaven is bestowed in a just and a righteous way. All of us have read throughout history of how individuals have come to the throne by murdering their predecessors, and that they came into power and honor by being bestowed upon them a kingdom in an unjust fashion. I want us to reflect for a few closing moments here on the fact of how that when we enter into heaven, it will not be in an unjust way, it will be in a most just and honorable and glorious way. How so? Because when we enter into glory and we are crowned with life eternal, we will have it fully declared unto us that this reward was first freely donated by the Father. In electing grace, God donated us a heaven to live in. It was freely given to us. It was not something that we merited or demerited. It was something in the eternal purpose of God that he saw fit to bestow upon us so that he will say, Enter into the presence of the Lord. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the what? From the foundation of the earth. It will be a just bestowal of a gift from the Father. It will be just because our reward of eternal life has been secondly purchased by the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels that he might come and bear the penalty for our sin, that God might be just in that he is holy and require that the soul that sinneth shall die, that he might be also the justifier of him that believes in Jesus because Christ has come and he has bore the penalty of those believers by bearing our sins upon the cross. Oh, my people... No one, including Satan, will be able to raise a charge. Hey, that's not fair for you to take a sinner like Jim Gables into heaven. God, you're unjust. God can say, I have a right to bestow upon him. I have a right to do it my own, as I see best. And the son can say, I paid everything that our holiness requires on the part of Jim Gables. It is a just transaction. The just for the unjust that he might be reconciled unto God. And then thirdly, we shall enter into heaven because we have been born heirs to it by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That we have been born again by the regenerating grace of God wherein that those who have experienced the spiritual birth have a right to the life of God in heaven to come. You see, my four children, which were born to my wife Carolyn and myself, they are heirs to our inheritance. They were naturally born so. But your problem in mind in the spiritual realm is that Adam was a creation of God. He was made upright. But he fell. And all of his children were born into this world not in a natural reconciled state with God, but they're born illegitimate. And they must be born again in order to experience the favor of God in the life. So that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And as the natural birth 
gave a Hebrew earthly privileges to say they were associated with Abraham and they had a right to live in that nation, so the spiritual birth gives to every child of God the right to bear the name of Jesus Christ, that they are an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ by the birth of the Holy Spirit. Your name's written down in heaven. It was written there by the donating free sovereign grace of the Father. It was written there by the purchase price of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was written there by the application of that work by the Holy Spirit giving you a birth into the rights and privileges of the Godhead itself. So, no one, be they man or angel, will be able to charge that God is unjust by taking a member of Adam's fallen race into his very bosom. He will be just, and he'll be the justifier of all of those who believe in Christ. Now, lastly, earthly crowns are worn many times in this life with sorrow and troubles. But this crown is going to be attended and worn with eternal joy. How many men have sought power and dominion and then after achieving it have had to put up with sorrow and frustration all the time they were sitting on the throne? Hmm? I wonder, after observing for, I'm 51 now, observing for, say, 40 years the political system in our country, of how that people used to have aspirations of holding a job as a governor or senator, House of Representatives. Some even may have been given some dream, desire to be president one day. I wonder if anybody who has any apprehension of the problems that go along with those offices today would still want to aspire to hold one. Would you like to be a 10-year-old boy and have high aspirations of being the President of the United States? You think my father had difficulty with fickle humanity. My friend, you set out to be the President of the United States and you'll find how fickle your fame can change. We've seen a Richard Nixon go from the height to the depths. We see now in our own presidential system, our present president, Mr. Bush, dropped from a popularity of some 86 or 87 percent in a year and a half down to 24, 25 percent. And then we've got this aspiring young man, Mr. Clinton, coming on now. He's going to change everything. And he may very well be given the opportunity to do so. But I'll guarantee you this, four years from now, this American system will put him out as well. Why? Because fame does not last. If you do not produce in our culture, you don't stay on the throne. That's just the story of politics. And if you achieved some things in which that you labored there, but all the time that you've got the honor of holding that office, 
you've got sorrow and frustration and disappointments to bear with it. I say, folks, there's not much to that crown when you have to bear all of that to go with it. But now hear me in closing. When God invites us as his people into his presence on that day, we will be crowned with a crown in which that there will be no sorrow, no sadness, no frustrations that accompany our life forever and forever and ever. That's the kind of crown I want. That's the kind of crown I want that will last on and on and on. Final passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 25 and verse 8. Isaiah, chapter 25 and verse 8. Speaking of God, he will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. Did you catch that? God will swallow up death. Paul uses that text in 1 Corinthians. And he will wipe away all tears from all faces. Revelation chapter 21, 22. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. Now you think that this life doesn't take its toll. Go back and look at the face of President Jimmy Carter before he took office. And look at his face four years later when he left office. And you'll see the ravages of what it took to hold the office of the presidency of the United States for a four-year period of time. What am I saying, folks? Is that with earthly crowns, there accompanies frustration, disappointments, and loneliness. But with this heavenly crown, none of those things shall be associated with it. For we shall be given a life in which that all of our tears, all of our sorrows, all of our disappointments... All of our frustrations will be washed away and we shall never remember them again anymore. Eternity without end. Now let some of my acquaintances look at me, make somewhat off-colored remarks. Don't you know you're wasting your life choosing to be a Christian? You're missing out on the things of this life. Brother Howard, I think in light of what I've learned out of this Christianity thing, I'm not as dumb as some people give me credit to be. Moses compared all of what he could have had in Egypt, and he compared that with suffering with the children, with the people of God, because he understood what the end was going to be out here. It's not a, now listen, it's not a dumb investment to invest your life in the service of Jesus Christ. You will receive dividends in this life and a hundredfold in the life to come. So don't let the ungodly and the unbelieving say you're wasting your life by living the life of a Christian. God will compensate his people the same way he compensated his son when he raised him from the dead and crowned him with glory and honor. He'll crown you also. Be faithful. 
unto death. Let us stand together. Let us pray. Father, we pray that your grace might sustain us as we walk through this earthly journey toward that crowning day when what you have so graciously bestowed upon us and was purchased by your Son and applied by the Spirit shall become ours in experience. And although our lives here at times seem to be such that it looks like that we are losing, may you enable us through the eye of faith to keep our understanding upon that, that we are not losing, that the world is passing away, but those who are doing the will of God are abiding forever and ever and ever. Send us to our homes with thanksgiving for what we are about to partake of for our food, but also send us to our homes for the spiritual food that we are to be grateful for. Hear these petitions and keep our mind focused upon glory to come and life eternal in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.